Well, Harvest, welcome. What a cool service we have today. We're going to dive into God's Word right now at this time. So if you'd grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you need a Bible, there's uh, some on the back of the seats there. I believe it's page 844. And uh, go ahead and grab that turn there because we're going to be in it. What a cool service we have today already from some songs together doing that. And uh, we're going to dive into Mark 8 here for a little while. We're going to have communion together. We're going to have baptisms together. We're going to have songs in between all that. Boy, first service was just electric. And uh, so looking forward to what the Lord's going to continue to do here in this room this morning. Well, big news, uh, as far as our series through the Gospel of Mark, we are midway through, we're halfway through. Now, normally I wouldn't make that big of a deal out of being halfway through a particular book of the Bible, unless you're like, man, I'm so glad we're halfway, let's get done. Um, but it's more a matter of with the Gospel of Mark, it has this very important center point. In fact, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is about who Jesus is. It's about who Jesus is. What's the first half of the Gospel of Mark about? Who Jesus is. The second half of the Gospel, we're turning into now, beginning to move towards, it talks about what Jesus came to do. What's the second half about? Okay, so we are right now in this midpoint, and there's two critical transitional events that take place. The first event is what we're going to be talking about today, and that's with Peter's voice. Peter's voice now comes to the table, and uh, in Peter, we hear him make this really cool uh, declarative statement here we're going to be talking through in a little bit. And then next Sunday, we're at the transfiguration. These two events provide this mid-turning point from who Jesus is to what Jesus came to do. So we're right in this really climactic, critical point in the, going through the Gospel of Mark. Well, let me summarize today's time where we, with Peter and this declarative statement. And let me uh, summarize it with two two-word statements. And if you see on the, your sermon notes page in the update there, it has them at the top. Here's a summary of our time right now. Radical relationship, gradual growth. Radical relationship, gradual growth. Uh, a relationship with Jesus Christ, it is a radical relationship. And it includes a gradual growth reality. By the way, big hope in all of that latter part there. A radical relationship, gradual growth. Uh, let's dive in. Let's go at it. Mark chapter 8, you there? Awesome. Let's pick up verse 22. You can see in there, verse 22, it says, and they came to where? Bethsaida. Where's Bethsaida? Well, we've got a map for you. Glad you asked. This is the map from last Sunday with some of the things on it we had. You can see Bethsaida over there in the yellow. It's just north of the Sea of Galilee. I'm, I'm bringing maps to the table because something's going to be happening in these coming weeks that all of these map movements really uh, tell the story. So we're north of the Sea of Galilee. We're in Bethsaida. Let's pick up verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida and some people brought to him, brought to Jesus, a blind man. And they begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man, Jesus did, by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, ooh, and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? 
Okay, let's, let's pause there a couple things. So some people, we don't know their names, we don't even know whether they're friends or what's going on, but some people, doesn't matter, they bring a blind man to Jesus because Jesus is there. Uh, similar to last Sunday with the, 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 the deaf mute man, and I do that because remember last Sunday, if you were here, it's one of the coolest, sweetest moments. You can be a guy and say sweet, okay? It's one of the sweetest moments where Jesus is like with him uh, last Sunday, chapter 7, I think, verse 31 and following, where Jesus comes to him and he goes, I'm coming at your ears and I'm coming at your mouth. So sweet. And here, what does Jesus do? He's got a blind man. So with a blind man, he doesn't get, say like, hey, a bunch of you grab and bring him over here. Jesus literally grabs him by the hands. Why would he do that? Because he can't see. And he grabs him by the hands and he takes him away. Uh, friends, I'm bringing this to the table because it just reminds us of the personalness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So personal, so intimate, so real. He gets the whole picture. He takes away from the hustle of the bustle and into some privacy. And then he spits on his eyes. I don't want to illustrate that. Uh, and I'm just going to put it this way. I'm not even sure why he did that one. I think some of the others you've seen me kind of say, I think there's some things why, like last Sunday, he, he, he's pointing to what's going on because the guy couldn't speak or hear. Uh, this one, I don't know why he spits on his eyes. It just sounds kind of creepy to me. But, but I will say this. People sometimes who approach the scriptures, and part of my job is not, not just taking us through the Bible and, and text of the Bible, but also helping you understand in your walking through scripture. And so sometimes what people do in these is they go and they've put together, well, he healed this way and then he healed that way. And they're trying to figure out, figure out like this magic incantational kind of a process here on how Jesus did it. Like it's a magic trick. And what's so cool about Jesus It's like he does it different every time because he knows that about us. We're just so weird with that kind of stuff if we think we can find it and get it figured out. And Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm playing with your heads. I'm going to do it every time. This time, I'm spitting in his eyes. (laughs) Okay. So that's what he does. He spits in his eyes and he asks the blind man one of the most odd questions. Do you now see? Do you see anything? Well, when we take it right at his face value, what's it saying? It's saying Jesus didn't know. Jesus is asking the guy, hey, after, after trying to heal you, can you now see anything? Well, that's very odd because I think Jesus knows exactly what happened. Except for here, it doesn't look like it. Well, here's what's going on here. Kind of cut to the chase. There is not another time in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus asks a follow-up question to a healing like this. Not another place. In fact, I'll I'll, I'll prove it to you. Chapter 1, the demon-possessed man and the leper. Jesus doesn't go, hey, is the demon gone from you or the the leprosy gone? Doesn't do that. Chapter 2, he doesn't ask the paralytic, hey, can you now walk? Chapter 3, he, he does not ask the man if his, if his hand is now fully restored. In chapter uh, 5, uh, he does not ask the demon-possessed man if all the legions of demons are gone. He didn't ask the woman with the bleeding if the bleeding had stopped. He didn't ask uh, Jairus if his daughter was now alive. Or he didn't ask the daughter, hey, are you feeling alive? We don't see any of that in in chapter 5. In chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't say, question, is everyone full? We don't see that anywhere in there. In in chapter 7, he does not ask the Gentile mother if the demon was gone from her daughter. 
In chapter 7 as well, he does not ask the deaf, mute, Gentile man if he can now hear and talk. And then in chapter 8, at the beginning of chapter 8, he doesn't ask everyone again, hey, 4,000, are you full? This is the only time we see a follow-up question to healing going on. And I'm just telling you, it's caused me as I'm going through this to perk my ears up. And what's happening here? Why with this blind man does the human author record this two-step healing? As we're going to see here in just a second. Well, here's my answer we'll read. Uh, Because here, like some other passages of Scripture... There are times when our Lord does things in a certain way to teach. Okay? Genesis 1 and 2. Why does God create the way he did? He created the way he did not only just to create, but to teach through the creation. And and here, by the way, I'm just putting it on the table. I think this is one of these times where Mark has put this account of Jesus doing this funkified two-step healing right before what we're going to read the event here in just a minute. This is a passage that teaches something more than the fact that Jesus just healed. Now, I say that, and I'll say it this way. Warning, warning, because do not be the kind of person that is looking all throughout your Bible at all the various texts to find the hidden meaning. Add all the numbers up, and you find out Kennedy died on this day. Don't be that. Okay, so I say this very carefully, but there are times in Scripture where that does take place. I'll show you here in just a second. Verse 24, verse 24. Uh, And he looked up after Jesus said, do you see anything? And he looked up, the guy looked, and he's like, I see people, alive people, not dead people, by the way. He says, "I I see people, but they look like trees walking. In other words, I see better than I ever saw in my whole life. But it's not clear right at the moment. Uh, Verse 25, then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And the text says, and he opened his eyes. Listen, he had the full authority and power to do it the first time. But he's doing something here. He's teaching something. He opened his eyes and his sight was restored. And the guy saw everything how? Clearly. People don't look like trees anymore. They look like people. And he sent him on his home saying, do not even enter the village. Let me talk through a couple things like this. So did Jesus have full power to be able to heal the guy the first time? Yes, he did. Or could it in fact have been that he was actually unsure and he didn't know? I think it worked. I hope it worked. But then that brings a problem. Because then that's saying he's not an all-knowing, all-powerful God, if that's the case. So Jesus asks, do you see anything? Verse 24, the blind man answers. Uh, I'm kind of paraphrasing. I think you can see it in the text here. I'll paraphrase it this way. I do see more. I see more clearly than I've ever seen before. But I still don't see everything clearly. That is the reality of the Christian life. You come to a place where you see the reality of the opportunity for a radical relationship with the second person of the Trinity and what he has done as a sinner separated from God. I can enter into a relationship with him and there comes a point in time where it's like, I see that, but here's the reality. You don't see everything. 
When I received Christ as my Savior at the age of seven years old, I just knew this. I had heard John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And as a seven-year-old, I was like, I want to be with God in heaven forever. And the Bible says I need to receive Christ. Bam. I remember standing between a bathroom door and a drinking fountain door right there, driving the stake in the ground as a seven-year-old, seeing fuzzily and yet seeing the main truth of I'm a sinner separated from God in need of a Savior. And I prayed and received Jesus Christ as my Savior at that time. But did I understand the whole picture? And the answer is... I see like I've never seen before, but I still don't see clearly. So Jesus lays his hands on him again. And in the whole time, he's like, boys, my 12 boys, are you watching what's happening here? And are you hearing what's being said? Because by the way, all of this is really important to you in about five minutes. And then he heals him again. He opens his eyes. And there it is, a picture of a two-step intentional healing, gradual reality of our spiritual walk with the Lord. Enter, seeing a little, grow to see more. Well, and this event ends at verse 26. Uh, Jesus is, sends the now seeing man uh, home. Essentially, I'll put it this way. He says, just go home. Don't make this a carnival show. Don't make this a spectacle. Uh, 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 spectacle. Uh, but just go home and let's all be amazed. That's what's going on. We pick up next event. Mark is writing and he tells us new event, verse 27. And Jesus went on his way with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Question and there is where Caesarea Philippi. I'm glad you asked because I have a map with that map. Is your Caesarea Philippi. It's further north from Bethsaida. It's up in the far regions. Karen and I have been able to be in that spot here. It's, this is not an important spot because of its geography. It's an important spot because of what was happening in the day. This area here in Caesarea Philippi was known to be on the edge area of what turns into paganism and idolatry and hatred of the Hebrew faith. And here Jesus takes his guys into this kind of territory and has a moment with them. Watch this. In an idolatry area, paganistic sense of feel of where they're at, Jesus all of a sudden does something They're in Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, verse 27, Jesus asks his disciples, Hey guys, who do people say that I am? (laughs) Parents, I hope you're this way with your kids in the car. Every so often you just bring up a question out of the blue. Why, Why questions? We're not surprised by Jesus asking another question at all. Jesus does this all the time. Questions draw out the heart. Questions bring people in and draw their heart out of them. So he asked this question, it's just normal walk. There's no big event going on. There's no crisis happening. They're just on a stroll. And Jesus says, hey guys, I have a question for you. By the way, the first question is really about the second question. But I have a question for you. Who do people say that I am? So I have a question now. (laughs) Did Jesus not know 
Was Jesus a bit obtuse or was he a bit uncomfortable or he couldn't quite pick out what people thought of him? What was the popular opinion of the day? Is that why he's asking? No, no, he's not asking because of that. He's asking to draw them in. So, so guys, who do people say that I am? And verse 28, and they told him. So it's an all in, they're all walking along, they all engage in and they tell him, some say that you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Oh, okay. So that's what people say. Okay. So some say that you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Remember earlier, we heard his story in the gospel of Mark. Some say that you're Elijah raised from the dead, returned back. Some say that you're one of the old Old Testament prophets comes back. Verse 28. And he asked them again, but who do you say that I am? By the way, in all of this, let me just kind of backtrack a hair here. Because the question about who do people say that I am is asking them, what's the popular opinion of the day? And here's really what's happening in this. Their answer that they have of John the baptizer, Elijah, one of the prophets, it's correct and incorrect. It's correct in that those were the opinions of the day. It's incorrect in that the opinions of the day were wrong. They were wrong. They're incorrect. Uh, Daniel Aiken says of this passage here, he says, uh, they are favorable assessments. They're positive assessments. They're affirming assessments. They honor Jesus, but they misrepresent Jesus. And he goes on to make this sentence. They applaud Jesus while denying who Jesus really is. You hear that? They applaud Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is awesome, man. Yeah, he's a legend. He's amazing. And at the same time, they just cut out his feet on who he really is. They are equating him to some other legendary human awesome person. But know this, that's not who he is. At least, that's not who Jesus says that he is. And that's not what scripture says that he is. Is he that? Or is he in fact God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity? Because listen, you do not applaud Jesus and then deny that. And yet that's what popular opinion was doing with the day. So Mark has been writing all this text. Remember, what's the first half of Mark about? Who Jesus is. And right now Mark is bringing it all kind of to a movement conclusion. So guys, who do you think? Jesus is. Friends, there's all kinds of popular opinions today on who Jesus is. He's an awesome dude. He's a moral figure. That's not the question. You and I do not have the ability to define who he is. He said who he is. And the question is only one of two answers. He is that or he is not that. You and I cannot redefine, reshape, remold Jesus to some popular statement, some trendy thing going on. We are not given the opportunity to do that. David Platt makes this statement uh, just so on with this. He says this, we American Christians have a way of taking the Jesus of the Bible and twisting him into a version of Jesus that we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, 
A Jesus who is fine with the nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts. A Jesus who wants to be balanced, who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings comfort and prosperity to us as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. We are good at it. But that is not who Jesus is. Verse 29. And so after they said it, verse 29, he asked them, guys, but who do you say that I am? That's really where he was getting. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, way to go, dude. Poor Peter. Peter gets picked on all the time. You know, like the flaps his mouth a lot and does a lot of things, but he's like such a dork. You know, sometimes it's kind of talked about like that. But listen, I want to tell you something here. Peter, bam, out of the park. Jesus asked the question, who do you guys say that I am? And I don't know how it happened, but somehow in it, in the conversation, I don't know if it was silent for a little while. It's like, I'm not talking first. You talk first. I don't want to talk first. I don't know what to think. I'm still trying to figure it out. And then Peter makes four words. You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Bam, dude. You just nailed it. Now, now understand this. What, what, what Peter is saying, uh, and I mean this, I mean this seriously, not, not in a joking fashion, because if you're, if you're new to the Bible, uh, just, or not, or learning some of this maybe for some of the first time, Jesus, or, uh, Peter is not saying that, well, well y- you are the Christ in that that's your last name, like you're Jesus Christ, and you're the son of Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. That, that's not what it was. Uh, it's a title. What Peter just gave here is he said, no, no, you are a specific title person. You are the, the Psalm 2 Davidic son person. The one that it talks about there, written, written way back in the Old Testament, you're that one. Peter is essentially saying with his statement, he's, you are the apocalyptic son of man title of Daniel 7. The one of Daniel 7 that it talks about, you're that one. You, you are that one that Daniel refers to as who's going to usher in an eternal kingdom to rule as king and lord. You're that guy. This is huge, you guys. He, he is not just giving them like, you're a really nice guy. You're an awesome guy. You're like, you're a legend. He is naming him as a particular person from redemptive history scriptures and naming him, you are that guy. And by the way, I'm just going to refer to back in, if you were to go to John 1 and understand how the disciples came to follow Christ, uh, Jesus comes and he asks Andrew and some of the others to, hey, do you want to have dinner together kind of a thing? And so they have dinner and, and Andrew, Peter's older brother, comes to Peter after that evening with Christ and he comes to Uh, Peter, and he says, Peter, we have found the Christos, the Christ. Now, now, that was a declarative statement in there. That's exactly what Andrew was doing here. But but I'm going to also add in this, this is a unique statement. And I say that because we've got from Mark chapter 1 to Mark chapter 8, and a whole lot more information happening. And, and, And now Peter, connecting to what Andrew said, bam, that's it. You are the Christ. Peter got it. Eyes opened, if you will. Peter, way to go, dude. 
Way to go, man. You got it. You have full understanding. Mm, no. Because watch. Bless his heart. We are going to see. I see more clearly than I've ever seen in my life before. You are the Christ. But I don't see full clearness yet. Look at the text. And, uh, by the way, verse 30, and he strictly charged them to tell no one about him uh, uh, right now. Okay, he definitely does that, but now is not the time. Verse 31, and Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man, by the way, in my Bible, I have quotes around that, because it's a title. Okay? He grabs the title that, that Peter used from Daniel 7. He said, and the Son of Man, he teaches them, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders. And the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And Jesus said this how? Plainly. That's an important word. I have it underlined. Part of it because of so many other times Jesus teaches like the, 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 the Mark chapter 4 and the, and the four parables. And he's telling stories and they get together and they're like, I have no idea what you just said. Can you explain that to me? Because it's not very plain. Mark makes sure that we understand when Jesus just said this, they're all like, that was plain. I got that one. I got it plain. Uh, you're going to suffer. You're going to be rejected. You're going to be killed. And you're going to rise again. He said it plainly. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> Buddy, bless your heart. No. Why is he doing this? Well, in this whole thing, Peter is clearly understanding some things, but he's not understand some things. Jesus just taught here that he's going to suffer, that he's going to be rejected, that he's going to be killed, he's going to rise again. By the way, with suffer, in your Bibles it says he must suffer. By the way, the must is in the Greek. If don't take the must out, he must suffer and he must be killed. And if you take that away from the gospel, you have just removed the glory of the gospel. He must do this. And Peter is on board with Jesus as the Christ, with Jesus as the Messiah. But Peter is not on board with that whole must part. In other words, he wants Jesus as his picture of Jesus from what he understands from Daniel 7 that he's going to be sitting on the throne ruling over the worlds and the nations. But this whole thing of you're going to suffer and be rejected and you're going to die, um, no, 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 it doesn't fit my paradigm for you. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and, and Peter has a little conversation with the second person of the Trinity about who he really is. And what he should do. <laughs> I don't think he's going to win this one. Uh, a commentator says Peter offers Jesus the crown but without the cross. And Peter's trying to take the cross away. So here Jesus addresses it. And by the way, I'll say he addresses it as heresy. By the way, how interesting is this? Peter just nailed it. You are the Christ. And a breath later, he's just stating heresy. Gradual growth. Gradual growth. And that gives me a lot of hope and should give you a lot of hope. No one has arrived in this room. No one. And so Jesus has a little conversation with him. 
(laughs) Verse 33. Mark includes interesting little things. But turning and seeing the disciples, he rebuked Peter. You got the picture? It's like Peter comes like, oh, oh, Jesus, um, you got this wrong. Uh, No, man, dude, you're off track. And Jesus is like, okay, the other 11 just heard this. I can't let this go. So I'm going to speak into it. And so he speaks into it. And he says, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Can you imagine Peter's eyes right there? Uh, Just what? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Hey, here's the reality. I liked what Peter said. I want that myself. I, why, why, uh, why a murdered, crucified Savior? Just go take the throne and rule the world. And, but it's like, no, no, no. That's not the way it is. And in this, this is so important to, to keep in mind. The, the idea of Jesus, you coming up and I coming up and our world coming up with an idea of the box that we want our Jesus to fit into, it is Satan-like to do that. That's what's going on here. Peter, what you just said, that's exactly what Satan does. He's a liar and a deceiver, and he takes everything about who I am, and he twists it around, and he tries to reshape it in some other thing to con and to fool people. But Satan, or to, but Peter, you are thinking and acting now just like that. Stop it. And he puts it on the table. Hey, by the way, friends, our Lord takes who he is and what he does very seriously and very personally, and you and I cannot shape him into our own little kabuki Jesus God. And yet it's done so often today. Peter nailed it and then he bombed it. But gradual growth, gradual growth. You know, I think this is an appropriate point just to kind of make this statement. So often in life, if you know Christ is your Savior, so often in life, we followers of Christ expect instant growth in other people and demand gradual growth in us. You know, it's like the kids, come on, (laughs) microwave you. Right? I mean, it's that way so often, or it's with our spouse. Listen, they should be instant on. They should just be there. Come on. And yet, by the way, be very gradual and gracious to me. Uh, we just had the opportunity, Karen and I, this week with our small group to, to visit over at Avon Middle School South and, and over there with them. And, and it was so, such a cool opportunity just to love on them through, through some uh, thing with them. And, and yet in that, uh, one of the people, one of the leaders made the comment about it just is so encouraging because sometimes it's so long and hard. And by the way, we have a group of people who go over on Mondays and Wednesdays to help with kids, mentoring them after school. And sometimes those of you who are doing that, don't you just wish you could just go, come on, kid. But that's not the way life is for us. We are slow at things. And the Lord knows that. And frankly, that's why Jesus doesn't fry Peter out here. But at the same time, he addresses it seriously. We are in a two-step gradual growth reality within ourselves. Well, let's read verse 34. Uh, um, Got to keep moving. 
And calling the crowd to him, so it goes even bigger, calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, to the crowd, if anyone would come after me, if, it's a conditional statement, you have a choice. You can come after me, or you don't have to come after me, but also it's open. If anyone would come after me, here's the three things to do. Let him deny himself, let him deny herself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let's park on these just for a couple minutes. Life with Christ is a radical relationship. It's a radical relationship reality. And here's what it looks like. Jesus tells us. It starts with you go after Jesus by number one, giving up. Give up. The text says deny himself, deny herself. Uh, that has this idea of giving up your self-determination. It's, it's a decision to treasure and value Jesus more than yourself and your comforts and your, uh, your preferences and your aspirations. It's choose to lose yourself. <sighs> Easy to say. It's no to me, yes to Jesus. By the way, it's an imperative form of the verb. It's a command. This is not a if you want to. This is a hey. If you want to be someone who follows after Jesus, there are three commands. You must give yourself up. And by the way, it's not a present active continuous verb. That means it's not saying every day ongoing. Luke 9.23 does tell about that idea. But here in this text, this giving up is, is kind of, there's an event that takes place of give up. Uh, second, taking up, uh, taking up. It's an illustration of crucifixion. Uh, take up your cross. Uh, it's this kind of idea. It's a painful death. Hey, friends, here's the reality. It's a painful thing to give yourself up. Because... I want to be about me, and you want to be about you, right? No? You're further down the road than I am. And I want everyone to be about me by nature, and so do you. And the reality of coming to a place to where it's like, I've been tracking down this road, and I need to switch and drive the stake in the ground and head down this direction now, that is not an easy decision. And yet in our day and age, so often we make it the kind of a thing, just come prayer, prayer, and all's good. And here it's give up and take up. It's also an imperative. It's a command. You must do this. By the way, couples, do you remember, uh, do you remember when you drove the stake in the ground and when you got married? By the way, husbands, this would be a great time to go, I do, right? Okay. <laughs> Otherwise lunch may not go so good. Uh, but you remember that day? Well, why did you do that? Why not just like live together or whatever? Why, why did you drive the stake in the ground with that? Because you were entering into a covenant relationship. You were entering into a whole new thing, a, a radical relationship, a covenant commitment. And by the way, in that covenant commitment, there's a giving up, taking up vow. Do you give up yourself for her? I do. Why well, I said that. It did. And so did you. And that's what's being talked about in this. It's a radical relationship. And when you said, I do, you entered into that kind of ra radical relationship. And let me ask this. When you said, I do at that moment, did you have great clarity to what the rest of marriage was all about? In other words, when you said, I do, did you, are you like, bam, I got marriage figured out. Guys, this would be a good time to go, I didn't. <laughs> I'm helping you out. 
Because you entered into a radical relationship by giving up and taking up, but then it becomes an ongoing learning the relationship for the rest of your life. By the way, the third thing is following after. It's an imperative, and it's a present act of continuous, which gives this kind of feel, I believe from the text, give yourself up, take it up, Give it over, die to self, and now start following after Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of a story? I mean, I brought that to the table, and you could remember when you got married on that day. Can you remember when you made a similar marriage vow declarative statement of he is my Christ? I'm driving the stake into the ground today. I am entering into a new relationship, me and Christ. And I'll just say this, if you don't have a story like that, I'm going to say this, I am lovingly concerned for you. I am lovingly concerned for you. Because I'm concerned that maybe you think relationship with the Lord is just about knowledge. But even the demons know. As many as received him, To them, he gave the right to become children of God. There is a driving in the stake ground reality that goes on. You go after by giving up, by taking up, and following after a radical relationship with gradual growth. Does that describe you? Let me just add with that as we wrap it here. Do Peter's words of, uh, no, Jesus, uh, you're not understanding what life with you is to look like. It's supposed to look like this. Does that describe you more? Or does Jesus' words of, you give up, you take up, and you follow after me more describe your thinking? There's a big difference between the two. The one shapes Jesus. The other follows after. Big difference. Let's conclude verse 35 to the end of the paragraph. For whoever would save his life, Jesus gives the basis, the reasoning behind his give yourself up, uh, take up the cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. Just briefly, this is uh, Jesus bringing logical sense to this. Why would anyone deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow after him and stop being about me? Because think about it. This is what Jesus is saying. Because listen, if you really treasure your life, you won't keep your life. If you really treasure your life, Jesus is saying, here's the deal. You'll give your life up. But do know this. In the giving your life up, it has grand eternal results. Hey, you want to treasure your life? Give your life up. If you do not want to treasure your life, just be about yourself. Because it turns into bad places. John Piper says, uh, what's the opposite of being ashamed of somebody? 
He says it's being proud of them, admiring them, not being embarrassed to be seen with them, loving instead to be identified with them. So Jesus is saying here, if you are embarrassed by me and the price I paid for you, by the way, he has a parenthetic statement in there where he says, uh, Jesus is not referring to lapses of courage. He's not referring to that, uh, lapses of courage, but he's talking about a settled heart here. If you have a settled heart that you are embarrassed by Christ, and him paying the price of what he did, if you're not proud of me, Jesus is saying, and you don't cherish me and what I did for you, if you want to put yourself with the goats that value their reputation in the goat herd more than they value me, then that's the way I will view you when I come. I will be ashamed of you. And you will perish with people who consider me an embarrassment. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Christ calls a man, when Christ calls a woman, he bids them come and die. The call to discipleship, the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ means both death and life. Radical relationship, gradual growth. Friends, here in just a little bit, we are going to be seeing some people who are going to be essentially telling this story. How they've entered into a a radical relationship with the Lord. Uh, uh, For for some of them, it was a long time ago that they entered into that. For others, it's been more recent. We had some in the first service as well, just sweet. And yet there's a gradual growth reality in all of us. Whereas we learn things and we mature and we see things and we wrestle through things. And you're going to hear stories of that today. How sweet is that? But before we do those, I think this is a perfect time to stop and to take communion. Why? Because everything Jesus has just said is pictured in that. Hey, friends, we are about to have the opportunity to take some material bread and some juice and represent everything that's being stated here, especially in verse 31. Jesus teaches them that the Son of Man, the Christ, must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. We're remembering that. And know this, if you've come to the place where you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is a time to enter into this. This is a time to remember what the Lord has done. And maybe even between you and the Lord, this last week has been a really bad week. Enter into this. Because it's a gradual growth reality. We're all growing through the process. And there's no better time to be able to remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, even in our sinfulness, than in a time like this, when we remember the death, and the burial, and ultimately the resurrection of our Savior. That's what's happening here. If you know Jesus Christ, we would ask you to participate with us It's not about being a member here. It's about being a member of the family of God. But I would also say this, if this morning, as we've been talking through, you're kind of like, boy, I'm not sure if I'm in relationship with the Lord. Can I just say this? Would you just not partake today? And just ask the question, who is Christ? And what does that mean to me? Has there been a giving up reality in me? Has there been a taking up reality in me? This is a time to remember for you. 
to come before the Lord. Show me, Lord. Show me. Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to partake in communion at this time. Communion servers, if you'd get in place. Lord, what a special opportunity it is to, to be reminded here in a text how fitting it is to be able to have a text today where with the baptisms we have and the communion time we have to reflect and remember on your greatness, your grandness, your awesomeness, and also the seriousness of all this. Father, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who maybe is, you are just using this text of Scripture to, to kind of uh, spur into them the question of, are they in relationship with you? And God, we remember that the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us falls short. We also remember the great truth of he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. We remember as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Behold, today is the day to give up and to take up and to drive the stake in the ground and to receive you as their Savior. Oh Lord, may that happen in this room today if there's a person that needs to. And in all of this, we celebrate. You went to the cross for us. Undeserved, in great need. You gave your body and your blood, making forgiveness available to anyone who would give up and take up and follow after. You are amazing. In Christ's name, amen.